Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Gulani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really privileged to be able to welcome Dr. Vivian Lee. Dr. Lee is president of Health Platforms at Verily Life Sciences, which is an alphabet company whose mission is to apply digital solutions that enable people to enjoy healthier lives. She also serves as a senior lecturer at Harvard Medical School and Mass General Hospital and senior fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. In 2019, she was ranked number 11 among the most influential people in healthcare. And I really enjoyed reading her most recent book, The Long Fix, about how we can improve our healthcare system. Also, as the audience knows, I'm based in Utah and Dr. Lee used to run University of Utah Health System. Uh, so it's really great to be able to connect with her. So Dr. Lee, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Hey, it's great to be with you, Shiv. Thank you for having me. So can you start by telling us a bit in your own words about yourself and what led you to your interest in medicine and then specifically radiology? When I was in junior high school, a very resourceful teacher uh, decided to assign every single kid in our ninth grade class to a local leader in our community. And I happened to be assigned to an internal medicine physician named Hal Belknap. And for many Saturdays, actually for several years, he would pick me up, we'd go and round uh, together in the hospital and he would visit with his mostly senior patients. And it was actually through that experience that I thought, oh, this is just a really interesting field, interesting profession. Nobody in my family had been physicians before. And I thought, oh, I could really imagine myself doing this. He seemed really happy. Um, and then of course, like 15, 20 years later, when I finally emerged from all the school and training and residency and fellowship, uh, medicine had changed a lot by the time I got out, but, uh, but I, still, I still love the profession. Yeah, and it's been a pretty pretty incredible journey you've taken since you became a physician. Um, you know, how did you get into administration then? I mean, running a, an entire health system uh, is no small feat. And we've had several other guests, including Dr. Michael Gustafson, who, as you may know, runs UMass Memorial Medical Center, join us on the raised line. And I have no idea how you all have the time to do it. Hmm. Well, you know, I think that uh, you've, you've had just such a great series of guests on your podcast. So congratulations. It's, it's like really, there are all these people that I actually wish I would have known when I was in medical school. Um, actually, one of the reasons why I wrote the book, The Long Fix, was really because I wanted to give students um, and trainees a sense of all the different things that they can do with a medical degree or all those all the things you can do in healthcare, really, that can really make a difference. Uh, because I never would have expected to have become the CEO of a healthcare system. It was absolutely not even remotely in my imagination. <laughs> and what happened was I, I was actually kind of minding my own business and trying to become a junior faculty member at, at NYU. I was in radiology doing MRI and uh, I had gotten an NIH grant. I was really happy about that. Teaching, doing clinical work, you know, it was really, really stimulated. And then we got a new chair of the department and he said, hey, you figured out how to get an NIH grant and it didn't take you 20 years like sometimes it takes people. So maybe you can figure out how to help everyone else get a, a grant. And so how would you feel about becoming a vice chair for the department? I thought, oh my goodness, you must be kidding me. Uh, what do I know? And the next thing you know, I, I found it really interesting. I studied all of these departments across the country and all the things that they were doing. And I was really trying to figure out how to help people, how to help the other faculty members in our department, learn how to do research or be more successful or have extra help like statisticians and research coordinators. And, and I discovered that that's actually kind of what administration is about. You know, it was really about identifying with the resources you have, 
how you could do better and how you can help people. And then maybe how you can get more resources to them so that they can do even better. And so when he became the CEO and the dean at NYU, he brought a whole bunch of us with him. It was really from that point on that I, I sort of caught this bug of, wow, you know, there's really a lot of things that we have to do to improve our healthcare system, to improve research, to improve education. You know, there's so many ways in which uh, I think strong leadership and strong leadership teams can do a lot. And I think that's, that's I guess, how we ended up down that journey. And then, then the University of Utah was so unexpected. I mean, I, I don't know how you ended up in Utah, but I didn't know anybody, you know, that I didn't have any family in Utah. I didn't have much in the way of connections. but um, that year that I was being recruited, the University of Utah was ranked number one in quality of all the university hospitals in the country. And NYU was number 10. We were really proud. We were the only medical system in New York State to be in the top 10. So we were bragging about it all the time. And then we'd always see University of Utah number one. And then we were hearing a lot about Intermountain. They were doing really interesting things there too. And I was trying to get the team to go do a field trip to Salt Lake City. You know, it was ski season. I said, let's go learn what those guys are doing. And then this headhunter called and said, hey, there's this job. Here's your field trip. You know, just come out and you can learn and just take a look at it. And I just fell in love with the place. I just thought that people were so innovative. They were so warm. They were so willing to change. And healthcare is all about change right now. So it was just a really wonderful experience. Some of my favorite parts of reading your book were about the, the actual stories you provide of your time at Utah, you know, the work that Geisinger and Iora and all these other innovative uh, systems and companies are, are doing. Several of us at Osmosis, it's like like require reading now for a lot of us. Um, I do think most medical students should read it. And that's one takeaway from this podcast. We're hoping to encourage our audience to do so. So like, how did you decide to prioritize what you put in the long fix? Um, and then one other thing I'll share is that I really appreciated that at the end of most chapters, you shared things that patients could do, clinicians could do, health administrators could do, and it was very actionable, it seemed. So we'd love to hear more about the journey, becoming an author, and like what you're hoping people will take away from it. It's super nice of you to say that, Chip. So thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate it. The thought of writing this book came up when I was uh, the dean of the medical school at, at Utah, and I was giving a whole bunch of lectures to the first-year medical students. Because I thought to myself, you know, here I am, leading this big system. And here I look at you, I was, actually what happened was I was asked by the National Academy of Medicine to give a talk about the future of medicine. And that's what started me down these, these lectures to the medical students. So, because I reached out to them, I said, let's do a town hall. I wanna hear what you guys are thinking about the future of medicine, because you are the future of medicine. And in the course of doing that, I realized that there were so many things that we weren't really teaching them in med school that were so critical to the future. I mean, it's of course, it's absolutely essential that you learn, you know, all the nerves in the body and all the diseases and microbiology and viruses and so on and so forth, that absolutely essential. But also really important to understand the business of healthcare. And I remember, you know, I went through medical school and of course I did graduate school, residency, blah, blah, blah. and I don't know how many years it was into administration before I really even understood the flow of money how we were paid, what insurance companies were incentivizing us to do as opposed to, I just didn't really understand the business of it. And I think right now, um, whether it's physicians or nurses or healthcare administrators or the MBAs, you know, all these folks who are gonna be leading healthcare going forward really need to understand how it works. And I wanted to write a book that made it seem understandable and not a textbook, you know, not kind of like just, tons and tons of, of um, statistics and facts, but just more of a narrative. 
And then, as you say, at the end of each chapter, actually having an action plan. So here's the takeaways, you know, here's some things that we can all do because it's everybody's responsibility, really, not just those of us in healthcare. So that's really what I was trying to do. I was trying to help people understand a problem that I think is one of the most important problems facing our society now. Why can't we get better health when we're spending two to three times as much money as any other high-income nation? Like, why, why can't we do that? We should be able to figure out how to do that. That's really the challenge, I think, for this generation. And COVID has just made it so much more urgent, right? COVID's made it imperative. Like now we need to figure it out. So that's really the lessons that I'm trying to get across in the book. Yeah, I think you've done a good job, again, of not making it like 10 research papers, but having a lot of research. I like the, the University of Utah study you referenced of you know, radiology expenses and how a lot of people think it's because of the expensive equipment, but you saw that 80% was staff costs and 40% is radiologist costs. And a lot of that is just doing non-radiology type work, like chasing down files and, you know, putting in orders and, and whatnot. And so one thing we've been very excited about is the potential of what, what medical schools are doing where to become a medical student, maybe the first few weeks you become an EMT first or, or you have to become a scribe and like you kind of can see what these other, other fields are doing uh, because ultimately scope of practice has to change to be able to put people in the right roles and, and reduce the cost of healthcare. Uh, is that something that, you know, you think Utah is still doing a good job at? And like, is that something that's pervasive now? Or is that only uh, at a few institutions in your opinion? Yeah, I love what you're describing. Because one of the talks that I used to give to medical students was, okay, so you're the physician, but healthcare is a team sport, right? So we had in the health sciences campus in, at the University of Utah, we had PAs and pharmacy students and occupational therapy and physical therapy and dietitians. you know, we had the whole gamut. And so we really focused a lot on interprofessional education. And what I said to the, the students was, you know, okay, so let's say you're like, you could be the quarterback if you want to, or you could, whatever your football metaphor is, or you could be the coach. You need to understand what every person's role is on that team. And until you can make the most of every other person, let's say you're the quarterback, doesn't matter how great a quarterback you are, if your offensive line and your running back isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing, you, you don't have a team. And I think what you've just suggested is really important is actually either living that role or working really, really closely with those folks. And I remember we did a, a class, uh, one of our pharmacology classes, we actually had the pharmacy students and the medical students actually do it together. And a whole bunch of the students said to me, you know, that was so amazing. I had no idea how much these pharmacy folks really know. I'm going to completely rely on them, you know, when I come out. And I said, that's a great takeaway. That's exactly how we should be thinking about healthcare. Totally. And that was, I think, the even to the point of working with your patients and, and their family members from caring to co-producing was that chapter you, you referenced a lot of that. So I know we don't have too much time, so I'm going to switch gears a bit to COVID. I would love to hear what you think the lasting changes are going to be to the healthcare systems, uh, both in the U.S. or abroad as well, because of COVID. And obviously, we've had a lot of telemedicine leaders. We've had Joe Kvidar, who runs the American Telemedicine Association, as you know. So we know telemedicine. You can definitely comment on that as well. But what other lasting changes do you think are going to happen in healthcare as a result of COVID? There's going to be so many, but I'll, I'll just mention three. So one is, I think that what COVID has really brought to light is just how prevalent uh, chronic diseases are in our society, because we knew we, we heard very early on, you know, the people who are the most susceptible to severe forms of COVID most likely to end up in the hospital are those who have chronic conditions, right? It's something like 80 or 90% of people who are in the hospital with COVID have um, associated chronic conditions. And um, it turns out when you look carefully in the American population, the majority of American adults 
fall into that bucket. So originally we might've thought, oh, you know, chronic diseases, that's sort of the exception, right? But actually at least 60% or more of Americans have an underlying chronic disease. And so I think one takeaway is just how much of an imperative it is for us to think about the primary care and prevention around those conditions. You know, hypertension can be managed for most people with a very low cost pill or even just better yet weight loss, um, diabetes, obesity, you know, all of these are preventable. Uh, the second one, when you mentioned telemedicine, I guess I always wanna layer on the notion that beyond telemedicine, there's a huge role for digital health to play, whether it's continuous glucose monitors for people with diabetes or blood pressure, you know, uh, monitors for people with hypertension, just that there really is a need to um, think about the ability to co-produce health in the patient's home and in their work setting and equip them with more than just the face-to-face, -face, you know, video conferencing capability or texting. Um, and I think that we're just seeing the beginning of that digital health capability. And I think it's just going to take off. It's going to be really interesting. And, and so that's tied to the third point, which is the economic impact of the COVID pandemic. You know, you've got a healthcare crisis causing an economic crisis, which in turn, because healthcare is almost 20% of the US economy, the downturn in our economy is going to in turn impact health. Because for example, Medicare trust fund part A is now projected to become insolvent by 2024. That's the part that pays for hospitals. That's a crisis. So we really need to accelerate the move to thinking about how do we get more bang for our buck in healthcare? How can we really drive value? Because we can't afford to waste the amount of money that we're wasting now in the healthcare system. And the pandemic has really um, created that pressure test and is forcing us to change more quickly. So I think those are three things for me. That's incredibly sobering. I didn't know that about the 2024 projection. You mentioned David Cutler in, in your book as well, and I actually learned from him when I was in college in a health policy class I took. And you know, one of your chapters that I really enjoyed was the employer-based health system, like how we have a very employer-based, and you're exactly right, healthcare causing an economic crisis, which has led to massive layoffs, tens of millions of people, which is gonna cause more of a healthcare crisis because now people don't have jobs to give them healthcare and there's no universal insurance. So uh, very sobering. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about Verily, um, your your current role running uh, health platforms there. We've gotten a chance to know some of the Alphabet-related folks, uh, including Garth Graham, another physician at YouTube Health, uh, and working with him, and been very impressed with how Google and Alphabet are looking at health. Can you tell us a bit more about what your priorities are at Verily and anything you can comment on how you're responding to the COVID crisis as well? Sure, I'm happy to. So for folks who are listening or watching who don't know much about Verily, we are a part of the Alphabet family. So we used to be called Google Life Sciences and then we were spun out when Google became Alphabet, we were one of the bets of the Alphabet family and we we're purpose-built to commercialize life sciences and healthcare products. So I was recruited about two and a half years ago to really start that part on healthcare, uh, which is why I lead health platforms. So we have, an, uh, I would say maybe uh, several pillars among our platforms. Um, one is really focused on digital health. The company is called Onduo. It started with a focus on type two diabetes, includes a continuous glucose monitor, includes uh, the ability to uh, do telehealth, to text and to video conference with the coach, a lot of AI, uh, really, really interesting product, very engaging, expanded now to hypertension, mental well-being, you know, and other conditions. That 
was was kind of our main focus for uh, individuals and employers. And then COVID came along. So with COVID, we've been doing a lot of work with universities and employers to help them get their employees and campuses back uh, safely. So it includes the app. We have a product called Healthy at Work, Healthy at School. It includes the app for symptom checking. We do lab testing for people who need us to stand up the lab testing capabilities. Uh, we've done lab testing both in the community and for employers and universities and more than a million and a half tests, for example, across the country. And then we provide the information back to the employer and to the university administrators dashboards. Uh, what's the most interesting there is also we have some really great epidemiologic modeling. So we can really look at the data that are publicly available about the prevalence of COVID in the community, in the work site, what's happening, and then make recommendations, you know, like how often maybe your, your employees ought to get tested so that we can keep everyone safe and keep the prevalence of COVID down using our epidemiologic, you know, data-driven models. So we've been doing that. Um, people, you know, everyone from smaller uh, companies to Fortune 100 companies, universities like Brown, Stanford, and others. So uh, I think that's been really gratifying. And then now thinking about post-COVID, how do we support vaccines and looking at, you know, immune status? I think that's going to be important next year. Um, beyond what we're doing for employers, we also have a whole suite of tools for health systems to help really hospitals, medical groups really drive value? How do, how do they succeed in terms of delivering better outcomes and lowering the cost of care? And then we also have some um, work in the insurance side. We just announced a stop loss insurance company that we've stood up, which is a, a little bit unusual. It's We call it a precision risk business where we can kind of more carefully analyze an employee population and figure out who is really at higher risk and might need more intervention, you know, maybe they need a digital health solution to help them out, uh, for example, with their diabetes or with their depression. So it's just a little bit of an innovation there also in the payer side. So th those are some of the things we're working on. That's pretty fascinating. I mean, you're doing quite a few things, but obviously with the resources behind you, I'm sure many of them are already or will be successful. My last question, which I know will resonate with our audience of millions of current and future healthcare professionals, what advice would you give them about meeting the challenges of COVID and, and beyond? Hmm. Well, I think it's the advice that I give just generally uh, to future healthcare professionals is um, I encourage you to, you know, to stay focused on the work and the training that you're undertaking now. So whether you're off becoming a, a physician or a PA or whatever area of healthcare that you're getting into and really live in the moment and learn the most from the experiences that you're having. And when I say that, sometimes, you know, just to clarify, just to add a little footnote to that, wherever you are, wherever you're in school, wherever you're in training, there's gonna be some really interesting things that are going on around you. Um, people are gonna be innovating in quality or in cost of care or access to care or patient satisfaction, patient reported outcomes, whatever. There's, there's so much good stuff going on. And if you, while you're in training there, have the opportunity to get involved in some of those projects, um, I think that'll really enrich your experiences and it'll help you be really equipped as you come out to, uh, to make a difference in your roles as you as you move up. So those are some words of advice. All right, that's some great advice. And obviously you have a lot more in the book, which again, we recommend people to go check out. So with that, Dr. Lee, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. And more importantly, for the work that you're doing to raise line and improve healthcare capacity. Well, thanks for all the work you're doing, Shiv. And thanks for having me on. Likewise. And with that, I'm Shiv Guglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line since we're all in this together. Take care.
more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>